Well, good morning, Calvary. Great to be here. I have been set up by Spencer to love you. I want you to know that. He brags on you every chance he gets. I can only imagine him when he becomes a grandfather. It's going to be a nightmare, believe me. Anyway, I would love you in any case because this is the environment that I love. As Pastor was just telling you, 32 years in Europe, all of these, all those years working with international churches. Uh, he summarized it well. We were in Rome for 10. Così parla italiano, pure come italiano. So I learned Italian like you should learn Italian. I love Italian. And our church in Rome was a great church. I, I think the thing I love most about it was from that church, we launched 15 churches, all led by Filipino leaders that we trained and sent out. I leave Sunday to go back to, the, to, to Brussels, and I'll be speaking at a European-wide, European-wide Filipino networking conference, and the core of this whole network was born out of our church. So I don't meet just my spiritual children. I meet my spiritual great-grandchildren at this point, which is a little scary. But I love that church. Then we were 10 years in Brussels, and that church was unique in another way. Tremendous outpouring. I'll talk a bit about that in just a moment. But every Sunday at one point, we were doing our services with my English in eight languages. So I'd look up to a translation booth. On the very far, my left, was a guy named Dimitri who had the Russian. Next to him, a guy named Kaleva who had the Arabic. Next to him, a guy named Hussein who had the Farsi, the language of Iran and Afghanistan. Next to him was Jimmy who had the Albanian. Next to him was Jonathan who had the French. Next to him was Jennifer who had the Flemish. And we had one seat open just in case someone by chance came in. We had about 65 to 70 different nations. It was a wonderful experience. And then from there, I went to spend three years working in Copenhagen, Denmark, working with a national church that wanted to reach one. They had about 1,000 people. They wanted to add 1,000 new internationals to their congregation. So we helped them get started down that road. And then after three years of doing that, they got a full-time international pastor. I went over the bridge to Malmö, Sweden. And in Sweden, I worked with a Swedish Pentecostal church who had decided their city was 34% foreign they said, if we do church the way we've always done church, we'll miss this whole community. So we have to change something. So we did change something. At the, at the end of the day, we met together corporately. The Swedes have this wonderful tradition. Every Swedish Pentecostal church has a full-service cafeteria. So after you have church, you go back and have a meal together. I'm talking about a full-on Swedish meal, which is fantastic. So we began in one service. Then we broke out into 10 different language groups. So we had 10 language groups in that church, and then we had our own, our own preaching service, then we met back for a, a meal together in the cafeteria. So that was great fun, all of that. In the meantime, I started an international church network that starts now, 81 churches in that network now in 47 European countries. And then in 2012, I launched a global international church network we had our first gathering in Jakarta in uh, Indonesia, 2015, and 2016, we did a big gather gathering in Hong Kong. All that to say that I have witnessed God do amazing things. That's why I have in front of you the phrase, God at work. We're talking about, in, this, in, this, in these moments together, about going beyond borders. I've been in missions quite a while, as you've listened and heard. I have witnessed God open doors that were historically closed in the days of my 32 years. 
When I started, we could not preach the gospel freely in Russia. We preach the gospel all over the Soviet Union today. We couldn't preach in Yugoslavia. Tito had the Yugoslavia locked, locked down. We're preaching the gospel all over. The, now the new nations formed out of former Yugoslavia. We could not preach the gospel freely in Romania, nor could we do so in Albania. But standing here today, all those doors are open by the grace of God. We have gone beyond borders. Amen. Impossible thoughts for those who started with me. We were, I remember the shock when the Berlin Wall came down. And all things that, for some of you, you're, you're, you're just hearing about this kind of in-depth for the first time. Uh, you're new in faith or you're not old enough to remember some of those things. But we live in unprecedented times. And the great news is that God's kingdom is an ever-advancing kingdom. Can you say amen to that? An ever-advancing kingdom. No matter what the world does, kings can march against it. Dictators can say they're going to abolish the name of our God. But until the day of his appearing, his kingdom is an ever-advancing kingdom. Amen indeed. Amen indeed. And that's why we want to be dialed in to what's happening right now, what will happen over the coming week. And I want you to be ready to give yourself like never before to the cause of our God and his great kingdom. I love to say this as a reminder to us because we live in the greatest country in the world. There's no doubt about that. With all of its flaws, with all of its negativity, it's still the greatest country in the world that I'm aware of. But here's what I want you to know. This is important to remember. No matter how much we long for revival in America, and I long for revival in America, no matter how much we do to invest in the, in the work of Christ, the work of God in America, and we should invest in that, remember this, always remember this, 93% of God's sons and daughters do not live in America. 93% of the sons and daughters of God do not live here. So no matter how much we do, how much we give, we've all, always got to be thinking that the 93% lie beyond the borders, and we've got to be, though we may never see them, we may never know them, we won't be ready to do, to do all we can for them. Can you say amen for that? I thought it would be nice. This is kind of the things you do when you're an international church guy. You meet people. You never really get to know them well. You don't get to know their families. So I, I'm, I love letting people know about my family, and I'm equally interested in knowing about yours. So if you have pictures of your grandchildren, I'm all in. I'm ready to see them. Show you just some photos of my family here. My wife and I have been married for 43 years. So I got married the day before I turned 20. Can you imagine that? What was I thinking? My wife's parent, grandparents are immigrants from Italy, so I married into an Italian family. I'm still the only guy in the family whose name does not end in a vowel. So I have been, you know, they want to make me, maybe they want to make me Terencio or something. They want to try to change my name. But anyway, my wife and I, 43 years together, I tell people that my wife's Italian, so as there was, yeah, that's a pretty powerful thing, Absolutely. The reality is, however, my wife's Italian, so Italian wives do not believe in divorce. They do believe in murder, not divorce. Actually, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said that at one time in an interview. Well, I don't believe in divorce. I do believe in murder, but not divorce. So anyway, that's my wife. We have two daughters. This is my daughter, Carrie. And Carrie is, uh, she should be the next photo there. There you are. That's my daughter, Carrie, single, wonderful girl, just on the last processes of finishing up everything she needs to do to go spend time in the Netherlands getting her doctorate. 
At this moment, she's a subject matter expert, does lots of research for Convoy, but she's on her way to that. Then I have a married daughter and three grandkids. This is my daughter, Christy, twin boys, Caleb and Luke, and baby Hannah. Isn't that beautiful? And my son-in-law, Andrew. These guys, as a family, are serving in Chi Alpha on, on, in Evanston, which is just outside Chicago, Northwestern University. And they reach internationals. The wife of Warren Buffett gave, gave Northwestern $100 million to recruit more international students, the brightest and the best from their countries. And my son-in-law and my daughter have their eyes set on reaching these newly arriving international students for the glory of God. Can you say amen for that? So I'm really proud of my family and uh, want to know more. We'll talk later. Here's what I knew. And let me give you the next slide. Here's what I knew when I went to, to Europe. Give, well, let me just talk a little bit here just for a second. I'm going to talk to you about present-day realities and powerful demonstrative realities that respond to them. The reason I'm going to do that is because sometimes the present-day realities, especially in this day, can become overwhelming. We hear things. We, we're aware of things. We watch statistics. We watch trends. And if we're not careful, the present-day realities can become the foremost things in our mind and, as a result, rob from us the power of what expectant faith could bring us. So we need these reminders that God's at work, and there's some powerful demonstrative realities. I'm going to only talk about three of them, but these three realities changed my life. I wanted to change yours as well. So what we know, when I went to Europe, what I knew was this. Everyone told me, Europe is dark. Europe is divided, and Europe is distant. That was the language I heard, spiritually dark. And, and, and it's true, the, 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 the Europeans are very cynical about religion. There's no doubt about that. But into that darkness, light has come. So though they may be cynical about religion, they're very curious about the supernatural. And God is doing supernatural things in Europe because God knows that to a cynical European heart, you've got to demonstrate the power and the authority and the glorious outpourings of the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, God is doing amazing things in ways that I'm going to try to give you a few stories about, but it's incredible. It is divided. I live in Brussels still. And Brussels is a linguistically divided nation. The French don't like the Flemish guys. The Flemish guys don't like the French guys. And if I speak French, I won't speak Flemish. And if you speak Flemish, you won't speak French, which makes it great for an English guy because we find common ground on English, which is kind of cool. No, I don't speak French, but I don't speak Flemish either, so let's speak English. So the point is they're very divided. To this day, there's a war going on. Should we linguistically separate? And you have your side, Wallonia, we'll have our side in Flanders, and let's break down this very unnatural coming together that we're trying to call a nation. And they're a fragile nation. They're a baby nation. And that's just not my country, Belgium. That's all of Europe. If you watch elections, elections in Europe indicate that Europe is seriously divided, but we're watching God in that division bring great unity. And, of course, they're very far, very distant from God. You've heard the statistics, so I don't want to try to calculate them again, but it's never higher, never reaches even 2% of the population who you could identify as ardent, passionate Christ followers who know enough about Jesus to make their way to heaven based on calling him Savior and Lord. So it's an incredible, difficult, dark, divided, distant place. But light has come, unity is arriving, and God is calling out to his sons and daughters in unbelievable ways. I'm so excited to tell you a little bit about it just this morning. These three things I want to talk to you about this morning, and we're just going to kind of do them in a highlight sort of way. Go to the next slide. I want to talk to you about harvest realities, generational realities, and declarative realities. Harvest realities are important because they are the most 
the, the foundational piece of the teaching of Jesus. If you go to John chapter 4, there's a wonderful chapter there. Jesus, sort of from the beginning of the chapter, opens up the idea about going beyond borders. If you know John chapter 4, then you know it opens with Jesus having this encounter at the well with the Samaritan woman. If you've been in church very long, you know that was an absolute forbidden conversation. Should not have happened. Should not have happened between him and a lady. Should not have happened between him and a Samaritan. Should not have happened at a public well. It was just all wrong at every level. It just was not what was supposed to happen. But Jesus had the conversation anyway. His disciples come back, and they're very annoyed because they're seeing Jesus standing there talking to this woman who, again, should not be a conversation he should be having. And Jesus sees them, and, and they come back. he comes back to them, and their words to him are, you know, Jesus, you need to eat. You obviously are hungry. You've become delusional. You're talking to women at wells in the midday and to Samaritans on top of that. To which Jesus answers in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look on the fields, they are ripe for harvest. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. What Jesus wanted to say on that day to them, he's saying to us, the harvest is rich and ripe and reachable. Can you say amen to that? The spiritual harvest of God is rich and ripe and reachable. We sometimes don't see that because we sometimes don't have eyes to see what Jesus sees or sometimes we're laboring in places where it's a time for seeding and, and, and sowing the ground and, and digging up the weeds. We're in the preparation phase, but it doesn't matter. If you span this globe, the harvest of our God is rich, ripe, and reachable now and always, and we need to be deeply convicted in our hearts that that is supposed to be our reality. Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples, identified three things that are a challenge for us. The problem of urgency, the problem of vision, and the problem of focus. His exact words were, stop saying four months and then. It was a saying in their culture. When you say, when to pass something off as not being important, just four months and then it's true. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I'm modeling something here in my conversations with this woman I'm being obedient to the Father and seeing him redeem those who could be redeemed. And I'm saying to you, stop saying four months. And one of the struggles that we battle all the time is urgency. Here's a word for us to hold on to. While we hesitate, Satan devastates. Satan robs the harvest because we are debating whether it's time to get in or not. Is it time to give everything? Is it time to recalibrate my prayer life? Is it time to rethink what I do or don't do with my time? Is it time to rethink about where my investment, where my treasure is? Those are all the conversations. And Jesus said that will always be a challenge, urgency. He also said there will always be a problem with vision. His words to his disciples were, lift up your eyes. Your vision is limited. Your vision is too, is too small, and that's the struggle with vision. We either suffer with limited vision, or we suffer with a lack of vision, or we suffer with the loss of vision. But vision is a problem, and Jesus addressed it. And then he said, lift up your eyes, look on the fields. They're white for harvest. I can't tell you in, in these words how much that, that, that one reality impacted my life back in 1978. It was a powerful thing, a come-to-Jesus moment when I recognized that my harvest understanding was not in the place I needed it to be 
and I ask God to begin to speak to me. I know you're a church that loves missionaries. I know you're a church that's given to missions consistently and generously, and I'm grateful for that. But what I want to say to you as brothers and sisters is that the big work is not behind us. The heavy lifting is in front of us. The hardest days to do the work of the Father will be in the days that will be deemed as the last days or prior to his coming. It will be harder, more difficult, more expensive, more challenging, everything you can imagine. So these days, like never before, we want to be dialed in to harvest realities. And it happens in places we often can't recognize. I remember being in Europe, in Brussels specifically, we had an outreach, so we'd go downtown and just, just try kind of stand on the streets and reach to the young, newly arriving refugees who were coming in those days a lot from the Middle East. We ended up getting connected somehow to a group of Iranians. In that group of Iranians, as is common, if you guys know anything about Iranians, they come from a culture of dreams, so they're prone to seeing dreams. And they will have dreams and visions of Jesus, a Jesus, Jesus they've never heard about, a Jesus they do not know. And they needed to be explained to them. We have a family who were fleeing from Iran. They were in the Bosnian forest, and they were trying to make their way to the west. And along the way, they became separated temporarily from one of their young twin boys, and they were heart sick. The mother's name is Layla. And they're trying, they have to hide in the weeds during the day and run at night. And so along the way, her husband Hamid twists his knees, so now he's, his knee doesn't work so well. And, and if you don't get down soon enough, the, soon enough the the, the guys who are taking you shoot over your head because they're trying to keep you safe so you don't get caught by the authorities in whatever na nation or land you might be in. Layla is exhausted, just exhausted. And Layla's fleeing because her youngest son, when just a baby, her brother was, went away to the Iraqi war, and she saw him in a brief moment. They kept him. They, she thinks they accused him of treason. So he was held captive by the Iraqis and then the Iranians. She saw him in the airport just a flash before her eyes, but never saw her brother again. She used to go to the police station to inquire about her brother. One time, they, after several visits, told her to come again. She went. The regime took her little baby boy, whose name is Mason, was two years, years old at the time, across the room, tied her into a chair, and poured boiling water on her little baby. So when his wounds got healed up enough to run, Layla and Hamid ran. Thus, they're in the Bosnian forest, and they're just, she's exhausted. She's shattered. She can't take it anymore. She says, laying their eyes open, a shepherd walked up to her, whose face was scratched and clothes were torn. He leaned over and began to rub her face, touch her face, and said, I know how you feel to be persecuted by your own brothers. It happened to me. She says the shepherd comforted her, and then he was gone. She eventually makes it into Brussels. We have a service there, as I told you. The leader is a young guy whose name was Oman, but his name now is Christopher Joel Shepherd. I baptized Christopher. He told me he got baptized. I want to change my name. Oman's the, father, the name my father gave me, but I want a different name. So we talked about it. He liked the name Joel. That was his favorite because it was a great minor prophet. But some Westerner told him that Christopher meant follower of Christ. So now he's conflicted. Should my name be Christopher or should it be Joel? I said, listen, in my country we can have two names. Let's just do both. He decided, well, now that we're doing that, let's just make it Christopher Joel and I'll take Shepherd as my last name. So he's there that night. Layla's in this meeting, first time ever, crying. 
He walks, she walks, he walks up to her, starts talking, and she's talking in, in, the, in, in, uh, in Farsi. And she's explaining to him what she saw. And Hamid says, Layla, what you saw was a shepherd. You don't know this, but the Bible talks about that shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. You don't know this, but John 10.10, Jesus himself called himself the good shepherd. You saw the shepherd, Layla. You saw Jesus. In the space of less than 18 months, we baptized 105 Iranians who took their Christian baptism in front of their Iranian Muslim friends. Incredible. Harvest realities. The second one I want you to pay close attention to is the generational reality. Now, this one is sort of taken after something it said of David in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. You might know this passage. What it says is that David, having served his father's generation, having, having served the, God's purposes for his generation, laid down and was buried with his fathers. David, having served God's purposes, to his, we're going back at the same one. We're back at harvest. Sorry about that. There's three points under harvest. Yeah, good, perfect. Generational. David served God's purposes. Now, I knew that David was a great warrior. I knew David was a great worshiper. I knew David had been wounded. But honestly, until someone oh, several years ago pointed this out to me, I didn't make this connection to David's life. The most outstanding thing about David, though he was a great warrior, though he was a phenomenal worshiper, and though he was a man who recovered from a deep personal wound, a moral wound, the greatest thing about David was he served God's purposes to his own generation. And the point is, guys, there's a generational reality. John chapter 9, verse 4 says, we must hurry to do the work of the Father before night comes. Hurry to do the work of the Father while it's day, because the night comes when no man can work. So there's a generational door that opens. What I'm saying is, in your family, in your neighborhood, in this church, and in Lakewood, New Jersey, there's a generational work that's limited to this generation. Your children can't do it for you. Your grandchildren can't do it for you. If we don't do it, the doors open, the doors close, and the opportunity is lost. That's an important thing to hold on to. You're sitting in a beautiful building. You're surrounded by several other beautiful buildings because the people of God who occupied this house in the past understood God is giving us an opportunity, and it's in the days of our generation. Previous pastors, people, previous members of the church and leaders of this church understood. It's a sacrifice to buy buildings. It's a sacrifice to build buildings. It's a sacrifice to support ministries. It's a sacrifice to keep things going. And they would have said, yes, 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 yes. But we're going to do it because this is our day and this is our moment. And we're not going to let doors open and close and not do all that needs to be done. Can you say amen to that? So there's this generational reality that, that we grasp. It says this is our moment. This is our time. And I can tell you in Europe right now, there are some dynamic pieces that are in motion. They weren't always in motion, and they will not always stay in motion, but they're in motion right now. And those moving pieces allow us to have influence and to go places like we've never gone before. I can tell you one of the greatest things that Europe ever got was the gift of brothers and sisters coming to our, our, our countries from faraway places. 
you probably know this. Every international church I know in Europe has a Friday night, all-night prayer meeting sponsored by the African brothers and their various fellowships every Friday night. And we pray, it started at 8, and we pray all night long. And I watch my African brothers and sisters pump, fist pumping, tears wet with tears. And they're not begging God for revival, for, for revival in Africa. They're begging God for revival in Europe. And so what's going to happen is God is going to hear the prayers of some people who were not born in these nations, should not be in our nations, but here they are in our nations. And God is saying, there's something here. We want to redeem this reality. Can you say amen? Wellington Boone says this. The church often has to learn by tribulation what they could have learned by revelation. Sometimes it's there, but we can't see it. God is setting us up for success, to open doors, to take us beyond borders. But we sometimes can't recognize this is a generational piece. My grandchildren will not understand it like I understood it because it was happening in the days of my generation. My grandfather came to America in 1925. He made it to Boston where an Italian immigrant lady had beds in her house. She could sleep in, get a job, and stay six months. But you prayed every night. You prayed before every meal. And you had church service every, every night except, except Saturday night. And she preached the gospel and prayed in tongues, even shouted and screamed in tongues. Scared those Italian refugees to death, probably. But my father-in-law met Jesus, the only member of his family to ever leave Italy, one whole leg of the Abenizio Crognali family are born again. Because Antonio and Abenizio made it to Boston, and someone understood, this is a moment, and I want to redeem it. Can you say amen to that? The last one is this, declarative realities. Now, this is sort of dialed up in this way. Let me just explain this one to you. The Bible's full of a lot of promises. How many love promises? Don't you love them? I love the promises. I grew up in a home where my mother had the little gold box on the table, and you had to read a verse every time before you ate your meal. Anybody have a family like that? The promise box. And we were a family of four, so six people at the table. Everybody had to read. My mother had this annoying habit. If the, peop, if the verse she got had a, a name she couldn't pronounce, she had to make seven or eight attempts at pronouncing it correctly. Is it Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Hezekiah? We, Mom, it's just Hezekiah. Just go with it. Whatever it is, just go with it. So it take forever. My mom taught me to love the promises. I had to teach myself that to every promise there comes a commandment. You can't grab the pocket, the promise, put it in your pocket. With the promise is a commandment to obey. With every privilege, there's a responsibility to take on. Everything works like that, except for this. There are in the scriptures what are called declarative realities where God speaks, and all you can do is say, Amen, God. Like Matthew 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What do you say to that? Amen, God. You're welcome to come. I'll recruit my own workers if you say no, but it's going to happen. Joel chapter 2, in the last day saith God, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Nothing hinders, nothing to be negotiated. God has decided he's going to do it. There's some others like that. Here are three of them. I'll read a few quickly. Isaiah chapter 42. These are perhaps one of your favorite verses as well. Here's what he says. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. So my praise, or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being. I will announce them to you. God declaratively says, 
I'm going to do new things. Do you believe it? I hope you do, but even if you don't, he's still going to do them. <laughs> I will do new things. And you just have to watch for the creative creativity of God. I was sitting outside Helsinki, Finland at a Finnish camp. Now, the Finnish wilderness is beautiful. And the buildings are all painted bright colors, red and yellow and greens, and it's beautiful. And the Swedish camp all has several components in it. So you drop your stuff off. And my friend Arto, I have friends like Arto, Juha, Pekka. I love their names. And he takes his, come with me. So we go down to the lake. There's this beautiful lake. It's summertime. The sun goes down about 1130 at night. This beautiful lake, it's about 10 o'clock. The sun is shimmering on the back of the lake. Beautiful lake. And he says, hey, come over here. And he points like, like almost with a pregnant pause. He sort of turns like, ah. And there's the sauna. Finns love the sauna. Life was born in the sauna. They, they, they build their, in America, you stand in line to go to a pop stand. In Finland, you stand in line to get in the sauna. So I got the lake shimmering. I got the sauna steaming. Then he walks me over to another place. There's a little pit and a massive grill covered with sausage. Sausages, grilled sausages are officially Finnish vegetables. They love sausages. So I'm sitting there, lake shimmering, sauna steaming, sausages sizzling. This is just a beautiful scene. And it's a gathering for a church, churches who have internationals. This guy on my right says, hey, how are you? Yes, I'm fine. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. So what's your name? My name is Felix. Where are you from, Felix? I'm from Nigeria. Really? Whoa. Nigeria, and you're living in Finland. Yeah, he says, isn't that crazy? And the reason I'm here is because I got a scholarship to study, and my host family is a Pentecostal family. So though I knew Jesus, I didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I've received the Spirit since I've been here studying in Finland. And Felix and I are talking. Guy on my left says, hey. I said, hey, how are you? Said, fine. What's your name? My name's Amos. Amos, where are you from? I'm from Zambia. Zambia, wow. So what are you doing here, Amos? Well, I came to study, and my, I didn't have a personal faith at all, but my university has a Christian group on campus. So I started going. I just met Jesus in the last month or so. So we're talking, and this lady says, uh, excuse me, could I? I was well, sure, come on in your conversation. She says, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I'm just here with my daughter. She's over there with those kids in that little group, about 15. I said, great, where are you from? She goes, well, I'm from Iraq. So I thought to myself, what an amazing God that put an American, a Zambian, a Nigerian, and a Rocky around sizzling sausage near a sauna in a shimmering lake in Finland to find each other to talk about Jesus. That's amazing. I'll do new things. The second thing that's in these verses, it's in Isaiah chapter 43, says, God says, you can read Isaiah 43, verse 13, I will do a work, and no one will hinder or reverse it. When I went to, to Europe, there was one international church inside the Assemblies of God, and, and it, it was Brussels. I started the second church in Rome. Now there are 81 churches all born over the last 25 or 30 years. Can you say it? About 20, 20 years or so. Can you say it? That's a, that's, a, that's a praiseworthy thing. Because God says, I will do a work, and no man will hinder or reverse it. We've had our challenges. Our church in Rome moved four times in two years, but it just kept growing. I love that. And the last one, Isaiah chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to anointed to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. 
to strip kings of their armor, to, be, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I go before you and will level the mountains. I'll break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron, and I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored up for you in secret places. God promises treasures born out of the darkness. My best story for that is a guy I met in Denmark. I was speaking at a teen challenge conference just outside, sort of near Branda, which is maybe an hour and a half or so from Copenhagen. The leader of the camp is a guy named Soren. Well, onto the camp comes this guy who's loud, 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 which is very uncharacteristic of, of, of Danes. Loud, laughing, punching people in the arm. And I thought, what guy's a, he's a life man. That guy's got life. I said, who's that guy? And she said, that's Lars. You know Lars' story? I said, I've never met Lars yet. Oh, wait till you hear his story. So a couple nights later, it was Lars' turn to speak on the stage and tell his story. I found out later that Lars is one of the key leaders in that area. He has his own coffee shop in, in Hoshon, and he's paid by the government to travel to Danish schools and speak about the, the risks and the danger of drug and alcohol abuse. But here's his story. He told it that night. Lars was born into an alcoholic home. When he was six, he started drinking with his father. When he was 13, they started doing alcohol and drugs together. When he was 15, the abuse in the home was so desperate, so bad, that he went to the streets of Copenhagen. For 25 years, he lived on the streets of Copenhagen, walking around, stinking, smelling of the things he drank and took, and smelling of his own body odors, carrying a black, everything I owned was in a black plastic bag. And as far as I knew, that was life for me, because I had never seen anything else until someone came by and told me about Jesus. Here's what he says. Do you remember the story when Jesus told his disciples, go into the city, you'll find a young donkey tied to a tree. Untie it, bring it to me, because I have need of it. Lara says, that's me. I had no idea. Oh, I knew I was stupid as a donkey. My dad told me that regularly. I knew people that walked by me lifted their nose when they smelled my odor, my odor, and they pretty much says, you smell like a donkey. What I never knew until someone looked me in the face on the streets of Copenhagen is I was not a donkey of no value. I was an instrument of the Lord who just needed to be untied and set free. And these things, brothers and sisters, are the things that help us push beyond borders. Beyond the present-day realities, God is still at work. And these powerful, demonstrative realities make that clear for us. Two more slides. They're just statements I want to make to you. God's promise for every generation is new visitation. Remember that. You're asking Jesus to come back. Jesus isn't ready to come back, and it's senseless to pray for it because until the day of his appearing, Jesus isn't going to hold back his glory. He's going to visit his people. How many believe that? The greatest days of outpouring are ahead of us. It's God's promise for every generation, new visitation. God's plan for every new generation is new leaders. When Moses died, did God get worry wrinkles on his forehead? And thought, oh, no, Moses died? Jeez. I missed the memo on that. Did, Joe, did Jesus go into panic when Moses died? Or did he say, Joshua, my son, get on your feet. Be bold, be strong. It's your turn now. 
That's how it goes. Great men pass away. God raises up another whole generation, and in that generation can be you and me. We can be as renowned in the kingdom of heaven, our names known to God, as much as any name that you revere or renown sitting here this morning. God bless. I'm grateful for every great servant of God who's come before me, but I'm convinced that God's plan for every new generation is new leaders, and I know God's provision for every new generation is new anointing. Some of you folks who are my age, can I just tell you something? We freak out when we hear about all the troubles of today because we walk largely in an anointing that helped us resolve issues in an earlier day. There will be a generation who will come on the scene who will have a new anointing, and every terrible thing that causes our heart fear will not even affect this new generation. They will walk in a new anointing. And as a church, we can pray for that new anointing to come into us, and we can raise up a new generation who walk in powerful anointings. This last thing. If we can do something, we should. If we do something, God will do something. And if God does something, watch out. We do something with our covenant. We do something with our commitment to him. We do something with regard to the dedication of our finances, our time, our talent, our treasure. We make willful choices. And if we can do something, we should. If we will do something, God will do something. And when God does something, friend, you can't measure what will come next. Watch out. Amen? I pray that God will speak truth and life to your hearts. I pray that these words that we have heard from his, his word would resonate inside you. That something would be born in your heart that would make you more poised, more ready, more prepared, and, and more anxious, excited, enthusiastic, expectant about the future. I pray that your mind will be awakened to the realities of the harvest, to generational realities, and to declarative realities that stand untested and will never be broken. I pray that you'll have hope for a future. And with all of God's good grace, that you'll dedicate yourself to him to make a difference in these days for our God and his kingdom. God bless you.